so I'm nine or ten years old. It's the heat of the summer. It's one of those hot summer afternoons. It's hot and sweltering and, and humid. And our, our little league team was having practice at the ball field because, well, we were terrible. So, uh, so we had to practice. But as we began to practice, as we kind of went back 45 minutes in or so, kind of some dark clouds began to scuttle overhead. And the wind picked up and kind of kicked up the dust a little bit. And we, we got, even as it grew darker, we, we kept practicing because, well, as I mentioned, we were terrible, so we needed to practice. And, but then something changed pretty, pretty rapidly. The wind grew even stronger, and lightning began to crack, and great big drops of rain began to fall. And within just a few minutes, it seemed like it was just sheets of rain. You couldn't even see across the ball field, sweeping across in that way. And then the tornado sirens started going on. Kids and parents scattered for the cars. For some reason, my folks weren't there. I couldn't see them, and we only had a couple of blocks on the ball field. So I hopped on my trusty stingray and started pedaling for home as fast as I could go. And going as hard as I crossed the intersection, I looked back down the road toward the edge of town, and I could see the funnel cloud. I could see where it was. It wasn't that far away. So now I'm pedaling faster, and my heart is pounding, and rain's hitting my skin like needles, and it's blinding my eyes, and, and I'm moving up and going gasping for breath. So I turn left by the elevator school, up two blocks, took another right, skidded into the carport, dropped my bike, ran inside, flopped on the living room floor, spread eagle like this, panting for breath. And when I stood up a few seconds later, it was like there'd been a crime scene. The whole outline of my body was there on the living room carpet. My grandmother was there. She handed me a towel and gave me a hug. And only then that I realized the carport had been empty. <laughs> my parents had come looking for me. They got back a couple minutes later. Why did you run? Didn't you know we would come for you? Why did I run? Because I was afraid. And I wanted to get the safest place I knew how to get. And the safest place I knew how to get was home. So I went there as hard as I could go. That, that's my most vivid early memory of fear. It really had an imprint on my soul. I'm not a fan of big storms even to this day. So look at that. But I wonder for you, when were you first afraid? Was there a shadow in the corner of your bedroom? Was there a monster in the closet, under the bed? Maybe something more tangible. Maybe it was a car wreck or a sickness or something that happened to bully at school. There are a few emotions really more universal than, than fear. Think about fear. It's this negative emotional response to some perceived threat. We're facing something unknown, something that's beyond our experience, and we know we don't have the resources, physical, mental, emotional, financial, relational, to handle it. And the result of that continues on that track. There's going to be pain and trouble or heartache, difficulty. Now, some... Fears are phobias that we can manage or avoid. If you have a fear of heights, you're probably not going to go out on a glass bottom ledge over the city of Chicago, 50 feet, 50 stories up. If you have fears of the number one and number two uh, fears are spiders and snakes, probably not going to go take a walk in a swamp, nor are you going to volunteer for the bulk of certain demonstration at the zoo. Or if you have claustrophobia, you're just not going to get in a crowded elevator. You're not going to press your way into this. We can kind of deal with that. But then there's the fear that comes from living on a messed up world. I mean, are we going to have a nuclear war? Where's the country going to go? What about terrorism? What about the violence that can happen at, at any time? What if I get cancer? What other unknown disease? What am I going to do with that? Now, none of those things may bother you. 
But there are some internal fears that are just as terrifying. They can be subtle, but they're soul deep. Think about this. There's this fear of rejection, the fear of failure, the fear of weakness, the fear of loss, the fear of abandonment, the fear of being seen, the fear of being known fully, the fear of losing control or being out of control, the fear of repeating some negative family pattern, the fear of greater responsibilities and expectations, FOMO, the fear of missing out, the fear of the unseen life around the bend, the fear of what if, fill in the blank. What are you afraid of? You know, fears that grab your soul, they dominate your thinking, they're the first thing you think about in the morning, they nag around the edges of you all day long, they're the last thing in your mind when you go to sleep at night, they shape your decisions and your relationships and what happens at work or school or the plans and dreams that you're making. Fears really can come to define our identity. And for many of us, our, our whole life can be summed up really as just some of our fears. That's how our whole life is being defined. But what I'm going to tell you this morning is that's not the way our good Heavenly Father intended for any of us to live. This morning we want to kind of wrestle this question a little bit. How can we not just manage our fears, but remove them as a defining aspect of our daily life? As always, we come to these kinds of matters of the soul. The Psalms are so helpful. So if you have your copy of the Bible, would you turn to Psalm 56? Almost right smack in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 56. Psalms, these book of prayers and psalms that deal so honestly with why they don't sugarcoat stuff, they don't spiritualize things, they just deal with it as it is. And the interesting thing about this is, is that if you look at the top of the, uh, right next to the number, right underneath the number of the psalm, it's what we call a superscription. It'll often give you the, the tune that ancient Hebrews would have known how to sing, uh, what it was like, but sometimes they'll give you a hint as to what, was, what were the circumstances around the writing of this hymn. This one has one. It says of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. In Gath. This is a particular moment in the life of King David. You may remember this, this story after Saul had, had disobeyed uh, God. The prophet Samuel came and anointed uh, David, who was the youngest of seven brothers from a shepherding family, as king. Now, he doesn't become king immediately. There's some time that goes by, but after he killed the giant Goliath, there was a slingshot and the, and the stone. His profile began to rise in the eyes of the people, and they began to sing songs about about David's exploits as a warrior. Matter of fact, they sang, sang, sang songs that said, "Hey, David's exploits as a warrior are better than Saul's leadership as a warrior king." And Saul heard that and became insanely jealous. So the Bible records that on several occasions, Saul decided to take David out completely. So David so feared for his life from his own king that he ran to the territory of the Philistines, who were the, the mortal enemy of the uh, of Israel. And then there the people there knew of his reputation as a warrior. They began singing the exact same songs. And here's what the Bible says David did. David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And then, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I like madmen? 
that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman and my friends. I got crazy people. I don't need any more. Now, listen, this is not the picture of King David we normally think about. Psalms, strumming something, singing a psalm, a warrior slingshot. But here, David's acting crazy. He's drooling. He's doodling aimlessly on the walls around him. Why? Because he was afraid. And if that could deflect attention, it might keep him alive for a little bit. But underneath all that, there's another dialogue going on deep inside David's soul. And that's what Psalm 56 is. Now, we're going to deal with the whole thing, but there's a couple of repeated verses that sum up the, the, uh, the theme. So if you'd stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and Ms. Reed McGinnis is going to come, and uh, McGinnis is going to come and read uh, this for us. And we're going to look at Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. Ms. Reed, would you read that for us, please? I am afraid I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I should not be afraid what can flesh do to me. Thank you, Reed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, once you catch the flow of thought here, just look back at verse 1. David prays, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So he feels trampled on, he feels attacked, he feels oppressed. Everywhere he looks, somebody's against him. And so he's kind of having to stay on his toes, because anybody could betray him. So I can put an arrow in his back, so the knife between his ribs. He said there's a constant tension all day long. His stomach is in knots all along. What if, what if, so it's kind of always like this. What if, is that exactly how fear works? Some threat comes, grabs by the throat or by the gut, and we feel we feel that. What if, what if I can't do it? What if my kids, my grandkids make that choice and go down that path? What if the company downsizes? What if the pathology turns, it comes back negative or positive, as the case might be? What if we don't have the money for... What if I gain the weight back? What if I don't get married? What if my presentation bombs? What if I don't get accepted to that program I'm supposed to go to next? What if somebody finds out about that part of my past? What if? And when that happens, all you see is the fear of the thing. You become consumed by the thing, shaped and identified by the thing. But even more, the whole vision of life gets clouded by the thing. So you don't see anything clearly anymore in any direction. It's like a jockey running a muddy track at Churchill Downs, right? He's mud everywhere and all over his goggles. And having to figure out, how am I going to see through the middle of this? And so you come to verse 3, and he shifts his perspective. I'm trampled, I'm oppressed, it's all day long, and those kind of things. And then he says, when I am afraid... I put my trust in you. So he changes lenses so he can see a thing fresh. Now, now, those jockeys often have three or four sets of goggles on on days like this, and they'll take one off, flip it off, flip it off. I don't know why they go through that when they could just simply buy a pair of these. You know, I take care of things. It's all. We're sitting to Pastor Jason telling him this is what happens when you leave town. <laughs> So good. This shift in perspective that David calls, he's not going to trust. We call that faith. It's a deep confidence and trust based on what you know to be true. Now, here's what I want you to see. Faith is not just a generic emotionalism. I've got a good feeling about this. 
It's not a, a sunny positivism. Oh, listen, everything will work out fine in the end. It is not a fuzzy fatalism. <clears throat> well, listen, I know everything will always work out the way it's supposed to, so I don't have to really worry about it. Now, we'll tell you what all three of those are. All three of those are this. It makes you look goofy and doesn't really change anything. Because I'm looking at the same thing over and over again to the exact same list. I had to change completely, not just kind of try to fake myself out. And that's where the perspective of faith comes in. Now, what is faith? Faith is a relentlessly God-focused confidence. He says, I will trust in you. In you. So it's a threat that causes me fear. Something I can feel, I can see, I can measure. A change of perspective has to look at that thing from the vantage point of faith. And so what Paul writes about this later in Corinthians is what he says. He says, we look not to the things that are seen, but things that are unseen. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Not by what I immediately see, but I'm walking by faith. By this relentless, God-focused confidence based on what I know to be true. So, in his crazy fear, here's what King David is doing. He is choosing to, willing himself to, look at his circumstances through the eyes of faith. He intends to trust his Heavenly Father more than he fears the thing. That's what faith does. And so that choice puts fear on the run. So let's look at this and see. How do we begin to chase fear? We chase fear with faith, first of all, in our Heavenly Father's faithful promises. It is faithful promises. says there in verse 4, in God I trust, in God whose word I praise. God speaks, and when God speaks, He reveals His character, His ways. We sang it earlier that God is love, and this God who is love never lies. Now, when this God who is love speaks and never lies, when He speaks, you know one of the most common phrases He speaks? Two words, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Uh, to people facing an enemy, a sickness, a storm, persecution, all of those are real threats, and yet God commands, He says, fear not. And that's so easy to say. Say, listen, I, I get that, but listen, when the threat comes, the emotion rises, I can't really control that. The emotion comes inside, and I'm just afraid. But the reality is this, that when the threat appears, the fear often arises because deep down we believe the threat more than we trust the promises of God. That's the story we're telling ourselves. This threat is bigger than the God that I know. So changing my perspective means I have to change the story I'm telling myself in the midst of the fear, the one that matches God's truth. And remember what Jesus said. He said, look, if you're my disciples, uh, you'll, you'll abide in my word, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. It'll set you free, and it'll set you free from, from fear. We know that every part of Scripture points to the reality of the gospel promises of Jesus. So let's look at a couple of these. The story you might be telling yourself if you're walking in fear. You might say, I'm afraid because, listen, there is no way out of this. I'm caught between a rock and a hard place between the devil and the deep blue sea. And that phrase itself is reflected in another story in the Scripture. You may remember the people of Israel had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses came and led them out, two million strong, all their families, all their livestock, all the things they had. And they came to the Red Sea, and they couldn't go any further because they were right in front of them. But the problem was that behind them, 
Pharaoh and his army, the superpower of their day, had figured out, oh, this is the economic engine that's been driving our nation for all these years. We've got to go get our slaves back. So they're coming with their chariots and their armies. And so here's the sea. Here's the, here's the enemy. Here's the devil that's coming. The devil in the deep blue sea. And in that moment, the people are terrified. They're terrified. And here's what, uh, what Moses says in Exodus. He says this. He says, fear not. Stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. Don't be afraid. And so they did. They stood still and watched, and God came. And the seas that God had created stood at attention because He was there. And they walked through the sea on dry grass. They're like the sea, like walls on either side of them. And when they all got settled to the other side, and then when the enemies came, and the sea closed back over them and, and took them out. And there's another place in the Psalms where it describes this, and it says, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. We walk by faith, not by, not by sight. Maybe your story is this. I'm afraid because I'm just all alone in this. Nobody's ever gone through this exactly like me. Nobody's ever been in this kind of situation before. Nobody else is here. I'm really by myself. So the prophet Elisha had made some harsh words against one of the enemies of Israel. And he and his servant Gehazi crawled out of the tent one morning, and they found themselves surrounded by the enemy forces, horses and chariots all around Gehazi's terrified. He says, what are we going to do, Elisha? And Elisha says to him in 2 Kings, he says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those that are with them. And God looks around and says, huh? And Elisha prays. He says, Lord, open his eyes and show him what's there. And he opens his eyes and he sees all around the hills are full of horses and chariots of fire. The angelic forces of God that were there behind the scenes. Listen, you're never alone. Remember the song we like to quote? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? You are where? With me. He's right there. With you. In the middle of that thing. So Deuteronomy says, As the Lord who goes before you, He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed because He is there. If you're his child, no matter what situation you're in, there's always one more. Where you're in the light, in the dark, no matter what your feelings are telling you, God is there. Maybe you're afraid. You say, I'm afraid. Because listen, nobody has the power to fix this. Nobody can make this thing go away. That's exactly what the disciples saw when that storm came up. Remember, a whole bunch of them had been fishermen. They spent their whole life on the sea. That's all they had ever, ever done. They'd never seen waves like this. They rode and rode and couldn't make any progress. They shifted the sails and nothing changed. Now they're having to bail water out. Jesus is sleeping through it. They went back and woke him up and said, we're, we're going to die here. Don't you care? Jesus stood up and spoke the storm. Remember what he said? He said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and said there was a great calm. So now the boat that just was back to sink because that's kind of gently rocking on the sea. And the water is in their eyes dripping down, and Jesus turns to them, and here's what he says. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Did you forget who was in the boat with you? Do you? Do you forget the one who is with you? The disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. Listen, Jesus knows your storm, but even more importantly, your storm knows Jesus. When He speaks, calm comes. 
says in Isaiah 41, he says, Fear not, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The right hand of God is the hand of power and authority. What does that hand do? It holds the universe together. Every star and every orbiting planet, every element, every subatomic particle, the flight of every sparrow, the heart of every king is held in the sovereign hand of God. And we say to describe that kind of power, we say he is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. And if that's true, you've got to know this, the threat you face is not going to be the first thing in eternity that's going to take your God out. It's just not going to happen. He's stronger. Jesus said, if you're his, you're in the palm of his hand, and nobody can snatch you away from that. What security there is in that? Reminds me of the old spiritual. My dad used to sing. My dad would sing. <clears throat> he would sing uh, bass level, just kind of three levels below anybody else. You know, it was kind of the, the bass. He kind of rumbled when he sang, right? My dad loved to sing and this, and he would sing a lot of times. He got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole in his hands, he's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. Next verse, you know, he's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. If you're his, that's where you are, and that's the safest place to be. You say, I don't know. I'm so afraid, and it, it just is so painful, so hard. It's hard for me in this kind of fear, this kind of pain, to even believe that God really loves me. But listen, an old bloody rugged cross has already settled that. He came, and not because you deserved it or earned it, but by grace. He knows your best, He knows your worst, and He chose to die for you, to die for your sins, so you can know Him, so you can have access to His life. He says in Jeremiah, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's not going anywhere. He loves you. He says if you're His, he, you're going to have it. It's not shaped by or changed by any kind of circumstances. So when the circumstances come, you look at your circumstances through the lens of the cross of Christ and an empty tomb, not the other way around. He loves you going in. He's going to love you coming out. Now listen, we can go on and on. There are dozens of promises, dozens of stories and truths specific to your specific threatening situation. But as you will trust God's faithful promises, that begins to shift your perspective away from the largest of the threat and how big it is to the power and love and faithfulness of God. And God will cut the root of your fear. So you see, we chase fear with faith by trust in our Heavenly Father's faithful promises, but also by His personal compassion. This is another aspect of this beginning in verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They shall have strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life for their crimes. Will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O oh God. Uh, he's just reminding us that fear comes in this tangled web of elements. There's circumstances, there's the people involved, and there are issues, things that are going on. There's physical, mental, social, relational, financial impacts, and all that comes crashing in on our emotional, which is why we have that sense of, of threat and fear. Now, how does that feel? The way that feels is the way he describes it. It's overwhelming. It's troubling. It's unjust. Here he's saying it's not just. The bad guys are winning. What's going on? It's not fair. It's messed up. It's crushing. And how does that show up in our lives, in our relationships? 
will bring anxiety, irritability in relationships, insomnia, can't sleep, acid reflux, my stomach's in knots, paranoia, distractedness. What does your heart most want in those kind of moments? I remember this letter from my wife, Paula. She'd be anxious about something in our family or something going on with her physically or something, and, and she'll tell me why she's anxious, what's going on. Maybe she's just tears or crying or just anxious about that. And I'll listen, but almost immediately, being, being the man that I am, uh, I will come back almost immediately with, okay, I got it. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Here's number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. It's a military strategy. We're going to take it out. We're going to take care of this thing. We're going to take care of it. And in those moments, what Paula does, after I get done with my plan, look at me and say, yeah, not helpful. <laughs> she didn't want that. She wasn't looking for a plan. She just wanted me to listen. Say, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I, I had to come alongside and share the pain to bring compassion with Fear doesn't just impact our hearts, uh, our thinking. It, it punches our hearts. And many times we're not looking to God to say, God, explain the why of all this pain. Sometimes we're looking for God to come near and close and assure us that He sees and He cares about it. Now look at look at verse, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. I mean, not in your book. I love this verse. When the threat makes your mind race and you can't sleep, and all along you're wrestling the sheets, you're just tossing and turning and tossing and turning back and forth and back and forth. It says he keeps count of your tossing. Now, how does he do that? Because he's watching. He's watching you like a parent who watches over a feverish child at night. He's watching you. And when fear brings you to tears, it says he catches them in your in his bottle. Each one slips out of your eyes and down your cheek, he catches and knows that. And this refers to a practice ancient military wives would have. How to keep a little bottle and as they wept over their their husband who was gone to war, they would catch those tears as a remembrance of their love and their longing remembrance for him to return home. Can I just remind you when you're his and it hurts, and you're scared, and you cry. You never cry alone. Your Father is near to the broken heart. Jesus wept, remember? He wept over that broken heart. Now, see, this is not passive observing. It prompts a personal involvement from the King of the Ages. So when it feels like the fear is taking you down for the last time, you can know that He, that he, he cares and He means to act. Because, look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this I know that God is for me. In God is word I praise. The Lord is word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So he says, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? But I love what he says there in verse 9. This I know that God is for me. Do you know that? Did you deep down the core of your soul, do you know that? That God is for you. He is He is for your good. He is for your joy. He is for your best. Paul reflects this later on in the Bible in Romans. You can probably finish it with me. If God is for me, then what? Who can what? Be against me. And the answer to that question is nobody. 
If God's me, nobody is going to be against me. What can man do to me? Nothing. So this compassion is the tender action of a God who loves you furiously. So I'm going to chase fear as I trust my Heavenly Father's faithful promises, His personal compassion, and then ultimately His hopeful purpose for my life. Look at verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You notice the difference? Paul's changed tense here. This is all future tense. This is what will happen. It's going to happen down the road. This is all looking forward, which means in hope, in faith, he's looking past the moment of his fear to a future time. So the story has moved to the other side of fear. So he's looking ahead in hope. He's past it. He's been delivered from it. So there's a reason to give thanks in advance of what God's going to do. He's still living. He's stepping into the light. He's out of the dark. He's into the light. And it's good. That's surely a painful season. There's struggle, there's tears, there's questions, but he's moving forward with God. If you follow the rest of the story from this point on, in David's life, he continues steady progress toward his calling as king, toward his anointing as king. He's moving forward. He didn't stop because God had a purpose and a calling for his life that he was going to work out. It's a part of his whole story. Same thing is true for you and me. Your season of threat and fear has a God-designed purpose. We don't believe in karma. We don't believe in the yin and the yang. We don't believe stuff comes back. We don't believe that at all. We believe that God moves, that God sees and knows life from the beginning and included this in our story. Psalm 39 says this, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every one of them, including the ones that include this threat, including the ones where I'm walking through, where I'm afraid about what's going to happen to me or my family or my health or my life, it's there in the middle of that. Now, here's the question. Why would God include fear in our story or allow it? I mean, God's powerful and strong. Can He just take it out? Can He keep us from having to experience this kind of kind of emotional burden? Can He, can he do that? Can he keep that out of our stories? Sure, but why Why wouldn't he? Well, the response to that is there are two different kinds of people here this morning. Some of you here this morning, and you, you do not yet have a relationship with God through Jesus. You may believe in God, you may not, but you've never stepped across that line of faith where you, you step across to trust Christ. And this season of fear and threat may be to press you to the end of you so you run to a relationship with Him. Because this fear and threat that you're experiencing right now on earth is nothing compared to an eternity apart from God. Apart from a relationship with God through Jesus, you won't be delivered from death. You won't walk in the light of life. You won't be, be free of this. As a matter of fact, this is as good as it's going to get. It's going to get worse and worse and worse for all eternity under that sense of threat and, and crushing burden that is there. But the offer of grace and love to you this morning is that there's a Jesus who came who loves you and died for you. So if you trust Him, you come into a relationship with Him, you have a relationship with God, and with His death and burial and resurrection, that can be your life. 
You trust Him to take away you at the center, put Him at the center, trust Him to put you right with God, and that becomes your rescue. Then there's hope. And so if you're here today, and you've not yet trusted Christ, I beg you, don't wait longer. Don't wait one more day. You trust Him. He'll put you right with God. And that changes the whole course of your story. But those of you who are here, you say, I do know Jesus. I trust Him. I have a relationship with Him. What's the deal? Why do I have to go through this? Here's what I can tell you. It's, it's a part of what a sovereign, loving God has planned to make you be like Jesus and advance His mission. Here's how I describe what God's plan is. We know this. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And the purpose is, the next verse says, to be conformed to the image of His Son. So all things, all things going on, all things fearful, all things threatening, all things difficult, all things crushing, all things overwhelming, right, work together for good, and they're working together somehow to conform me to the image of His Son, to make me more and more like Jesus, to make you more and more like Jesus. We walk through a season of fear with faith and we begin to lean on those promises, begin to trust His compassion for us. He begins to strip away our self-reliance. He begins to press us to get outside of ourselves. He pressed us to trust the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a once upon a time story about Jesus, but it's a right now story about you. That the, that the power that He has to overcome death is right now real for you and for me. And we experience that little piece of, of dying in our soul. So when you're His, what this means is the fear and the threat will never have the last word in your story. Faith means no matter the threat, there's always a future. There's always another page to your story with your father. So, what are you afraid of? Facts are, if you're not in a storm now, the storm's coming. And it may terrify you, it may paralyze you, it may set you spin as hard as you can do to get away from it. That's what you know that you don't have to run in fear from any threat. You can stand in faith in this relentless confidence that your Heavenly Father loves you. That He's bigger than your threat. That He's stronger than your threat. Trust your Heavenly Father more than you fear the thing. Because here's what He's promised. He's promised to get you through. He's promised to get you the safest place of all. He's promised to get you home before the dark. And here's what I really think He sent me here to tell you today. Don't be afraid. Let's stand again as we pray. I don't know where your life situation may be right now. Maybe in a moment, you want to come and kneel here and maybe just confess to the Lord that you have allowed the story of your life to be the story of your fears. And you've been trusting those more than you trusted Him. He will respond to a cry of faith, so help me trust you, Jesus. This is your day to trust Him to get right in a relationship with God. This is the time to do that as well. If you want to come with somebody that you know is afraid, you would come as a brother or sister alongside them and pray with them. We had that in our 
earlier service today. So Lord, we pray in these moments that these truths are the reality of your goodness, your word, your promise, your compassion, your purpose would sink deep into our souls. Help us not to respond in obedience to your prompting as we tell you we need you. We desperately need you to live lives of faith for your glory and honor. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You come as we worship together.